Blog Talk Radio. Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you are an author and you're looking for an in-depth novel writing uh, retreat or experience that I'm teaching one with uh, Robert Dugoni, n- number one New York Times and internationally best-selling author, it's a four-day retreat that we'll be doing in Tennessee in March. So all the info is at novelwritingintensive.com and uh, includes a critique of 50 pages of your writing and about almost 20 hours worth of instruction and critique over the course of over the course of the retreat. So, for today's guest, I am excited because he is a new friend of mine uh that I met at a conference and I hold him in high regard. Uh Andrew Gross is the author of 14 New York Times bestsellers, 5 with James Patterson and 9 in Zone is International bestsellers include Everything to Lose, No Way Back, Eyes Wide Open, Don't Look Back, Dark Tide, The Blue Zone. He's also the author of Lifeguard and Judge and Jury with with James Patterson. His books have been translated into more than 25 languages, and his latest novel, The One Man, has received star reviews and book lists and Publishers Weekly. Peter James, the number one U.K. bestselling author of You Are Dead, calls it one of the most compelling thrillers he's read, gripping and chilling and charged with emotion, a brilliant tour de force. So, Andrew, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Hey, Stephen, great to be here. You know, you never you, you never feel better about yourself than when you're introduced to, to say a few words. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I was, uh, I was at a conference one time, and somebody gave a really glowing um, introduction for, for a gentleman, and he got up and he said, that is the kindest introduction I've ever written. And so <laughs> I've, yeah. I've used that line myself sometimes. I know. Because like, no, you're I, sort I, of I, feeling I, awkward, and you're like, oh, well, I sound so wonderful. And then you just kind of want to break the ice with people. So, Well, anyway, it's good to be here. And uh, your, uh, your seminar sounds good, too. So, Yeah, thanks. Um, so, you know, one of the things, I've, of course, we've, we've sat down and chatted at conferences, and I've read your, you know, bios and stuff online. And one of the things that strikes me is, that you identify yourself first and foremost as a storyteller, not necessarily a genre mm-hmm. writer. Of course, you write suspense and thrillers, kind of high concept. My people might call high concept books, but but you've also stepped beyond different boundaries. When did you first think of yourself? You say, "I'm a I'm a storyteller." Really, that's at the core of what I'm trying to accomplish here. Well, you mean professionally or or personally? You know, I. I I guess I come from a family of storytellers. Most people seem to associate that with the, um, you know, with, with the South. Sure. Um, but I grew up in a family um, of uh, 
of uh, apparel business um, executives and managers, and uh, so sort of in our you know Jewish um, um, garment center way, we have our own stories that center around family, um, and uh, so I sort of feel that I've always been exposed to it, um, it, even when I was um, in college, I actually wasn't, ri- I was writing, but I wasn't writing fiction, I was I was uh, writing poems, and yet at the same time, there's just something, I, I think, innate about it when you sort of have the ability to respond to a story and, and maybe, you know, tell it yourself and add something different to it, so, you know, if, if you're someone who pays attention to James Patterson. Um, I, I did a bunch of books with him, and if you ask him what's the um, foundation of any great novel, his one-word answer will be storytelling. Uh, and, nice. you know, what else are we really trying to do except, uh, you know, pass down something that maybe touches enough of the universal that you put a lens up and you can see yourself through a story so um yeah it's what i think it's what i think i do and not to go on but on on it but even even within high concept thrillers i think the things that um might um mark mine a little differently than most people and then also influenced where i wanted to go in a newer way with my career um is that there are these stories within them they're not just um um, sort of uh, uh, races to uh, uh, solve a mystery, but there's a whole lot of. I've always sort of built what I think is a whole lot of texture in my books, and uh, I, I think one of the reasons, going back, that even Patterson found his way to me is that um, you know the kinds of things I write are, are charged with emotion, and you know where does emotion come from? But from the beauty of a well-told story. Yeah, excellent. That's, yeah. You know, that's a great way to put it. And, and um, I think emotion comes uh, from empathy, where we identify with a character. And I know a lot mm-hmm. of your stories have dealt with normal, everyday kind of people, right, who are thrown into these extraordinary circumstances and have to either somehow discover their strength or rise to the occasion or overcome these incredible odds. And I think that's one of the reasons maybe that they're so attractive to so many people, you know, is that the the main character is someone they can identify with. Right, and I totally agree. And, you know, under the guise of what you might call suburban thrillers, which is what I sort of thought that I did for nine books in my own, which, you know, is, um, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, characters in an upscale environment and, you know, to some degree, successful people, not necessarily down-and-out people, and and who, through some some error of judgment of their own or just through blind fate, um, find themselves in predicaments that uh, they quickly get over their heads in and have to find ways to pull themselves and generally their family out. And in these stories, family is never very far away because, one, that's what creates the resonance and 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 you know two um i guess i'm a believer in thrillers that the stakes always have to get higher and um my kind of heroes don't save the world um but what they do have to save is is their family and the people they love um so i think that that you know 
um, in, in my mind, touches the chords um, more, st- you know, in a stronger way than if um, the free world hinges on their decisions, so to speak, or their actions. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I, I was trying to think. I think Donald Moss has said that um, when you write a, a story, either you have an extraordinary character that you need to make more, um, I guess, relatable. Believable, yeah, right. relatable, yeah. Or you have a normal kind of everyday character that you have to show in some way is extraordinary. And and I think in your stories that the you know the characters have to do that. They have to become, in a sense, extraordinary. But but how do you keep things believable when you have a normal life, or well, you know, relatively normal with all of the ups and downs that we have, and then suddenly this sinister force comes in? How do you keep it believable that these characters can um, withstand, uh, you know, the storm or overcome it? Actually, in the very end. Well, you keep it believable, I guess, through the tautness of, um, of of what's at stake, and when the when when what's at stake is, I mean, how, how does an everyday person become a hero? It's it's uh, you know, I, I think you 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 know what they have to resolve or what they have to deal with, um, and, and and what you just said from Donald Moss is a terrific quote and an interesting way to look at characters in books. But when you take ordinary people and you put them in extraordinary circumstances, I think the thing that people find so inspirational, um, and, and, I, and I sort of like the idea of inspiration in a thriller and in characters, is that I think that you know courage expands to fit the need of the situation. So, so you know, I, I look at someone like Sully. Um, you know, for a while I was totally captivated with this guy because he, on, on, on the surface, was about the most ordinary person in the world other than his daily job involved being responsible for bunches of people. Um, but, you know, showed these incredible nerves of steel and quick judgment, you know, and, and, and then afterwards just went back to being an ordinary person, you know. And, and so, you know, I, I, I suppose that that's what I sort of, you know, in the, in the phase that I was, write what you know. Well, what do I know? I, I know these sort of, uh, you know, upscale suburban environments. I know people who, you know, have one foot in the financial business, and it's not very difficult to think of them having one foot in a murkier sort of business. Sure. I know the soccer moms or the yoga moms, you know, uh, the hedge fund dads. And, and so I like putting these people in peril um and you know but ultimately ultimately it is a bit of a formula and and you know i've always sort of said that the deafness of of how we do our craft is that we conceal from people that we're writing within a formula you know yeah. and the degree to which you can do it when you do a book a year and do it do it well and not have people go, oh yeah, yeah another missing kid, huh? You know, <laughs> yeah. is is how good we are or or not, you know, at what we do. And I wrote these nine books, and not all of them did make the bestseller list. Although I'll take, I, I liked your introduction, but but <laughs> but, but most did. Um, you know, in, in in my typical way, they would get on like the Times list at number. 13 or 14 for one week and then, you know, catapult out the next week, but but I guess it's better to be on than not be on. Um so so I wrote I wrote I wrote all these books and 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 what you do get is this sense of um how you're always having to come up with novel ways to entrap 
your heroes, and then your heroes become the same people too. I, I won't name names, but right. you know, even an author that I wrote a bunch of books with, like uh, a, a, a perpetual number one selling author who I co-wrote with, you know, you can see the same character, and I don't want to disparage him because right. the guy's made gazillions of dollars and is at the top of his craft, but. Basically, it's sort of the mask with many faces. It's the same character over and over and over, and also the same villain. So, you know, to, you know, you keep coming, having to come up with new ways to entrap and then ultimately to extricate your characters. And, and, and as well, the same sort of things are at stake. So I decided um, after doing these, you know, nine books on my own that, uh, not so much from the reason that I had to refresh my own creativity, but that I wanted to move my brand in a different way, um, as well as my sales. I I just said that uh, I want to write different books, and um, that that's not an easy thing to do um, because within the structure of uh, the publishing industry, people perceive you not only your plots and your characters in a certain way, but your own abilities as right, an author, right. if they're, especially if they're associated with you know, high concept or popular fiction or, or, um, you know, things of, or, or high-paced fiction, uh, et cetera. Sure. So, um, but I felt compelled that I, I sort of wanted to write books more like the books that I want to read, which were much more atmospheric, um, and and sort of tapped into usually history in some way, and so I, I I just felt that I was pushing this boulder perpetually uphill, having to come up with these novel ways, like I said before, of entrap of entrapping and extricating my people. And at some point, you know, when I when when I when my nine book deal with my publisher ended. Uh, and an idea stared me in the face. I just said, "What the hell?" And I let the boulder fall. And yeah, now uh, that's I, I love that. You know, I love the stuff that you said about you know stepping out of your brand and how people have expectations. And I, I'm one of those people. I don't want to be branded so much mm-hmm. as like he writes police procedurals or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Um, I want to tell. A fresh story every time I write a every book. Time, and, yeah, right. yeah, and some of my books uh, certainly are in a series, so people are familiar with some of the characters. And but man, if I ever sat down and started writing a book, and then I was suddenly like, okay, um, this is basically the same book as before. I'm just changing the name of the love interest, the name of the killer, and the name of mm-hmm. you know the city or something. Right. <laughs> man, I I just couldn't do it. It's just not how I'm wired. Uh, well, you, what you said is good. You said you know you want to tell a fresh story every book, but but sometimes these stories, you know, what I hate is when, for the sake of of how you're pigeonholed by a publisher, you have to to, right. to sort of chisel these stories to fit, you know, the tight model of the kind of books they're expecting from you, and and you know I you know I mean this is purely out of out of the air, but I'm I want to write a family memoir at this point, yeah, and. And I, 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 by nature, I write fiction, and I don't know that anyone really wants to pay me for what I think will be a, a terrific book. But, but now, you know, I, there, there's sort of this uh, urge in me that looks at these stories and says, how do I now fit them into, 
you know, the framework of a thriller. And in my own mind, I'm sort of prostituting the history of my own family in order to put it into something mercantile hmm. for me yeah. that just fits someone's business expectation of me. Yeah. And and I haven't decided where I'm going to go with it, but I, I, I'm trying to resist as much as I can and say these are these are sacred stories in my family and yeah. they shouldn't be you know, fit. You know, they shouldn't be over dramatized or over sensationalized to put them into a thriller. You know, they should just be the stories. So it's hard in publishing because every time I propose doing something different, um, I had a long contract with with uh, Harper Collins, but I, I don't even shouldn't even name them because I'm not trying to rag on them in any way. But right. but every time that I sort of wanted to do something radically different, what I would kind of get was. Oh, I love it. Great idea. That's fantastic. But maybe the next one we should stay in the vein that we're in, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. so you know, no, and gradually, you, finally, finally, my contract ended. So I, I, I was able to take the step. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hear you. When, you. when you're talking about your family memoir, too, it's like, I don't know if you knew, but my master's degree is actually in storytelling. That's what I oh. studied back in, no. uh, back in college, mm-hmm. yeah, about 20 years ago now, I guess. Wow, I can't believe it's... 20 years mm-hmm. since I graduated, but my master's degree 40 thesis, for me. <laughs> my master's degree thesis was actually on um, crafting personal experience stories, and my thesis question was how much can I change it and still claim it's true? Right. Um, and so, you know, for me, it kind of boils down to the expectations that your audience has. If I write a novel and I and I say, you know. Um, this is a novel. People expect that it's completely made up. And, or if we were sitting around a campfire and I said, I'm going to tell you a story about last week when I saw this 12-foot bear up in Alaska. And I start telling you this story. Well, at the end of the night, if you leave, someone might say, hey, did Steve tell you the truth? You No, he didn't tell us the truth, you 12-foot bear, like that. But then if they said, did he lie? You'd probably say, well, no, he wasn't lying. Yeah, right, right. right. It, it was, you know, he was telling us and so on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because of right. the expectations. But if you, well, let's say that, um, let's say that you were uh, on the stand, of course, at a, you know, at, in a in court trial. or something. Yeah, and then they say, well, tell us what happened up in Alaska. Well, there was a twelve foot yeah. bear. So immediately, people, oh, I don't believe him. That's not right. So, so how do you find a way to? match audience expectations, or in our case, reader expectations, with the amount of truth that you're going to contain. And as soon as you start telling personal stories and memoirs, I mean, you run into all those questions that you'll have to, you know, evaluate. Do I include dialogue? Because it's going to be representation. Oh, yes, I, I do. I mean, right. I, sure. I, yeah. I, I, to me, that's that's a non-starter and a given. You know, I think so, too. I you're do you're too. creating I scenes, right. even if it's not 100% accurate. I know that I can think of a few people who have gotten in trouble by over-embellishing memoirs. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I think at this point, uh, a lot of it, a lot of it just comes from, um, you know, you know, if, if, if are you are you in some way trying to embellish yourself, or are you just sort of, you know, telling a story that you or may or may not be a character in? In, in the case of what I want to do, I don't even think I'll end up being a character in these. In, yeah. in these, so I, I think some of the people that have gotten in trouble and somehow I'm old enough now that the names are escaping me are yeah. looked at that they're trying to self-aggrandize themselves, and you know, the guy who who got his, uh, uh, you know, teeth drilled without Novocaine, or I, I forget which, which one that was in, you know. And, and, and then at some point, you know, it turns out that he's just a wimp like the rest of us, you know. But, 
but I, you know, to me, what, what I may do is just sort of about generations of my family more than more than me. But yeah, but I actually, think. I guess what you're saying is a good segue into the kinds of books that I that I have just written, because I, I I wrote a World War II story with a with a Holocaust theme called the One Man. It's out a couple of months, and I constantly had to um, um, question myself. Um, given that I was dealing with the Holocaust, how much embellishment, um, how much I was allowed to put in there that wasn't true, because um, the bar of truth and fidelity to sure. to um, um, fact and respect to to the fates of people sort of demand that you don't do something for purely entertainment purposes and twist those kind of fact kinds of facts. Yeah, I'm so, glad you brought up the book because there's so many aspects of story that really do relate with that. And um, where did you, for you, when you when you were looking at that, what sort of um, I guess principles or standards did you use personally for discerning how much truth or how much fiction to be able to weave into into the story itself? Well, I I, I wanted you know everything had to have everything in this book. Uh, I mean, basically, in one sentence, um, the one man is about um, an escaped Polish Jew who is convinced to go back to where his family was murdered um, in order to help smuggle out the one man that the Allies feel can win them the war. And that man is an atomic scientist that they need um, to fill um, a, a knowledge gap on the Manhattan Project. And the place that this person ends up getting sent is, is Auschwitz. So, you know, if you were pitching, I would buy that book if I was a publisher just based on that description. <laughs> it's such a great concept. Yeah, it, it, and it's it's it, when I say it's never been done, I guess you know there's a line in the book about getting into Auschwitz is never the problem. Was never seen to be the problem. You know, it's yeah. the other way around. Um, but everything I did, um, and I and I have to say, it was sort of pushed by my own agent who um, did his college thesis on Holocaust literature and said that he didn't even want to push it himself. I mean, you know, I wrote this uh, as an outline before, yeah. and, and, and I, I, I do outline very heavily and, and thoroughly, and, and um, you know, all I wanted him to do was to sell the effing thing because, you know, uh, all right, I put months into this outline, just go sure. out and get me money for it, get me a deal. And he kept putting the brakes on, basically pushing me that he wouldn't take it out unless there was some historical precedent for every aspect of it. Wow. And so, so you know, really forced me to go back and, you know, in the author's comments at the end, you know, state how much was true and how much wasn't. And, uh, you know, a lot of it is. You know, you can't, sure. you can't uh, on, on a subject such as that, it's, it's sacrosanct. So you can't tread on that for the wrong reasons. On the other hand, um, and, and some of it is built on my wife's family stories. Um, and, and at the same time, you're writing a novel. And at the same time, there is a, because there's a ticking clock and because there's a, a lot at stake here, there's, there is a thriller component to it for certain. But so, so there is that sort of gratuitous entertainment value to it that, you know, uh, um, but what was always important to me and, and was my litmus test, I guess, is that I wrote this book because uh, my father-in-law was a survivor 
and oh, wow. came here, well, not a survivor of the camps, but came here as a kid uh, when he was 19, and his entire family was lost in the war, and he was the only one in his vast family to survive the war. Mm, wow. And like a lot of like a lot of survivor, like a lot of uh, he he carried this heaviness with him his whole life, even though he was fairly successful here. Um, and this sort of mantle of guilt or shame or anguish, or he just wasn't like the rest of us. You know, he he had this this this. I don't want to say it was a cloud, because but you know, this guilt or something. And I and he would never talk about it. He would never he never defined it to me. He never defined it to his own. Children, and as a matter of fact, my wife never even knew the names of his of her grandparents because he wouldn't talk about them. And so, what I really set out to do um, at some point, he he when he moved here, he ended up in the OSS because of his facility with languages. And so, what I set out to do was to write, was to find out, to write what what sort of was responsible for that heaviness. I knew there was something that happened over there that he wouldn't talk about, and I sort of wanted to fill the blanks in on the story of, you know, what he might have felt and the story that he might have written. So that's wow. sort of what I set myself as, as long as it fit into that, that it was valid, you know, yeah. and and not um, um, what's the right way, you know. Uh, yeah, you're uh, not taking advantage of right, history or the it, reader, right, you know. And, right. Um, and you were saying that all, all of that. It reminded me of a saying I heard one time: "Is in order to tell the truth, we must edit it." And uh, it's like in order to shape a memoir or a story like this that has deep roots in reality and what actually happened, you have to edit it not so that you're lying, but so that you can actually tell the truth about about what happened. You have to put some sort of form and and pour it into a story, which. You know, it's that's right. What, that's what you're an expert at. Well, the beauty of history is when it's transformed into a story of some kind, and so you know you have to do that. And I, I did it without any apologies in this book, although I'd say you know more than half of it is fiction, but it's fiction that all has a historical precedent to it. You know, and and uh, you know, uh, I, I guess um, you know, if you're writing about Auschwitz, um, you. Um, you know, I, I never set out to write the definitive book on on Auschwitz. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, the one man I carefully crafted so that it was a story about heroism, not atrocity. Hmm. And and the camp that he has to go into, he has 72 hours to get himself in, find this scientist, and and get them out. And he has a way to get them out. Uh, to get, you know, but he doesn't even know if this person's alive. And also the sheer numbers of actually finding someone in this camp um, are pretty daunting. So to him, it's a suicide mission. And so actually what's just as important in the book is why he would undertake this mission, which basically he looks at uh, that may well cost him his life. Um, and, and, you know, I won't go into why, but but the, the why are the same sort of uh, reasons that uh, – that my father-in-law um, may have carried this 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 uh, wow, sense yeah. of guilt with him. Yeah, when you're talking about the why, there it reminded me of I was mentioning Robert Dagoni, and I teach this mm -hmm. seminar. And one of the illustrations that he uses is uh, he said, if you have a if you're writing about a woman who's upstairs, and uh, all of a sudden she hears someone 
in the living room, and she starts down the stairs toward the living room. Reader's going to be like, that's crazy. What? She would never do that. She would call 911, or she would go find a gun or a baseball bat, or, mm-hmm. or she would cower in the corner or something. It doesn't. That's not believable. But he said, if you had a baby monitor, and it crackles to life, and she hears the baby, and then she hears someone downstairs where the baby's sleeping, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then she starts down the stairs, and everyone is like, well, of course she would go. Mm-hmm. She's because protecting her the, cub. Yeah. yeah, because of the stakes. And so, uh, I mean, it's the exact same scene. One way it's believable, um, and not only believable, but we we want her to go and and, and be heroic and so on. And the, the other way, we say, no, come on, we, we don't buy it. Well, you know, getting back to how we, we were talking earlier, I guess, about, you know, how we – you know, write thrillers within predictable outcomes and 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 settings is that every thriller demands a leap of faith. And I would always argue with my editors. As a matter of fact, I've I've divorced two editors, or they've divorced <laughs> me. I haven't decided, but you know, I had I, I left two. And so sometimes some real, you know, I was going to use. I don't know if I'm allowed to use any language here. Say whatever you need. You know, but uh, it's a real shit-ass fights were going on between editor and and author, and a lot of them were over the believability of there's always one moment in my books where someone has to do something that if you just put the acid test of, come on, if you took 100 people, you know, how many of them would do that? Well, my job then after I sort of conceive it and write it even, is to go back and then paper the walls with so many things, like you talk about the baby monitor, yeah. that, I mean, all you care about is the, is the woman gets down the stairs. Yeah. What you have to put in the story to get her down the stairs <laughs> is, is, is uh, you know, is, is sort of how well we do our job again, you know? If you don't put anything, then you've got readers rolling their eyes. But like you said, if, 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 you know, if her kid is down there, or she suspects, or something like sure, that, yeah. then it's a then it's a a moment of passion and a moment, you know. So so anyway, you know, I I've spent my whole career trying to, you know, justify that one step where a regular person puts themselves in a situation that involves danger, where you may say to yourself, and re- I think I'm just going to shrink away from that right. moment, you know. I but you know, if if they shrink away, we we we're we're out of a job. <laughs> I wrote a a series of books for teenagers um, about a, a kid who's uh, it's kind of a an athletic star in high school. He's a, kind of a jock, but he's not a stupid, tip stereotypical kind of whatever dumb jock or whatever. But but uh, but he begins to lose touch with reality, and he can't really tell what's real and what's not. And it ends up that this girl is found drowned from their high school, and everyone believes that she, of course, uh, drowned accidentally, but he begins to think that it was someone has killed her. So so he ends up having to solve this murder um, while he's losing touch with reality. And for me, um, that uh, as, I wrote, as I wrote it, he was kind of a normal kid for the most part, but he had to do these extraordinary things, and... I guess the weakness that I gave him was this idea of he, he can't tell exactly what's real and what's not. But my hat goes off to people who can write those stories like you were just explaining, where you have sort of that normal, everyday guy, and he's got to take that step, that final step. 
And most of my novels have always been about someone who's in a situation where it's not unbelievable for them to face extreme danger, in a sense. Um, mm-hmm. So, so well, I mean, you know, if you have one of these superhero you know. guys, it's you don't even have to justify those moments because yeah. by nature, they they put themselves in them. But and, and and it's more believable, you know. But but you know, everybody has that moment where they have to say, is this going to be in my self interest or am I doing this to, you know, for whatever reason? And anyway, I mean, every, every certainly every one of my books seems to almost have that one thing. In the case of the one man, you know. I have a, a a guy who was uh, working in intelligence, uh, translating Polish cables, who um, is thought because of his looks and because he had been able to escape the Krakow ghetto, showing a lot of guile, that he would be the right person to send back. You know, they couldn't sure. send back one of these waspy superheroes because <laughs> he ain't going to fit into the camp, you know. So they had to find the right sort of person. And here's a person who... Um, who there's there's a lot of it's called the one man and there is in fact in the book the one man that I described is the scientist but there are a lot of different people who would sort of look um, at themselves in the mirror in this book and ask if they are the one man to 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 be able to do what's required and um, so anyway uh, you know he again even though it's a military person. It's a person who, by nature, is not heroic, but ends up, um, you know, for for um, either the good of his own family or in honor, in homage to his family, um, or for the good of his new country, um, putting himself in a real dire circumstance. Now, when you uh, talk at writers' conferences, maybe you're on panels or you're leading seminars for aspiring writers and so on, Mm -hmm. what are some of the key principles that you like to point out that really make stories work? I mean, we've talked about empathy um, and emotion, um, about identifying with the characters. um, Or maybe, maybe I should say it this way, what are some of the mistakes that you see aspiring authors keep making? Well, I'll, t- I'll tackle the first one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, only, you know, I, I mean, I'm a big stickler for what's at stake in the book. I, I, I think because that sort of shines the energy over the entire story. And I never really like to read, I don't even read as many thrillers probably as most of your guests in my own craft, but I don't like to read thrillers where all that's at stake is the solving of the crime or the doing of the deed, you know, whether right. whether it's you know, um, um, you know, finding a mole in the in the um, uh, you know in the CIA, or whether it's uh, you know a murderer or something. So I, I like I, I sort of like what's at stake has to always get larger and has to be richer. And I also think that that um, and this somewhat relates to what we were talking about that there's. There's, there, there. You know, I call it you, you, your hero. It has to be so believable that they are in a situation where they can't get out of it and they can't go backwards. In other words, you can't just call the police. There's, there's right. no way that at some point, you, well, why didn't he just call the police? So everything has to be really tight from that sort of point of view. Um, and, and you know, if we're, if we're talking, if we're talking thrillers. If we're talking just character, um, then then I look at it that you know the, the best characters are the ones where you can hold a lens up and see yourself, 
and and to me that's what makes something really rich. Um, I think it was <clears throat> Thoreau that said that he used this about wisdom, but I I use it about art. Um, that he would say he said wisdom is uh, when you learn to see the miraculous in the mundane, and and I think that great great reads great art is something where you can sort of see the universal in the mundane and and so so it's sort of you know these are i guess the things that i focus on that whenever anybody reads a book that they think it's great it's not at least for me it's not just i couldn't put it down i mean i don't really operate on that level you sort of want to feel that you've tapped into something that sheds light wisdom inspiration you know where where you know you just sort of feel that you know you've you've been transported not just for me entertained so anyway those are yeah you know, no, those, I guess that's the, great the kinds of things i always generally focus on but. when i started writing back many years ago now um i heard this saying and i i don't know who who said it but he said um literature is news that stays news and uh the idea is you write it and it has that truth that you were just talking about. It doesn't pass away with the news cycle for for that day. Um, and so at the time I was writing a lot of, I guess you would say throwaway things. So I don't know, but you know, for magazines or journals, newspapers, stuff like that. So I was writing these stories, mm-hmm. knowing that at the end of the week that it was going to be put at the bottom of someone's birdcage. And I was like, is this really what I want for my life? I want to be writing stuff that, you know, will be at the bottom of the birdcage at the end of the week. And I was like, no, I want to write um, a story that stays. I want to write news that stays news, that someone can read it this year or next year and still feel that resonance of something deeper than mm-hmm. just the events of the story. Well, there you go. You yeah. Know? And, and you know, I've written relatively to very good thrillers most of my career but i never wrote anything kind of like the one man and and you know it's 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 quite amazing to me um it's actually so great although you know it it sort of didn't get on this breakout runaway bestseller track and and i i was actually surprised that it didn't yeah. but it didn't um but it's had remarkably long legs and it's outsold you know at this point most of my certainly my last five or six books wow. and 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 it and it keeps rolling and what i like about it is that i'm getting i mean i get letters back you know amazon notes and stuff from from rabbis who are really impressed with mm. um the use of rabbinical law to justify the decision and for someone like me who had a drive-by bar mitzvah that you know <laughs> to be complimented on such an, an an esoteric thing i'm i'm like honored you know there's there's actually a bunch of atomic physics in it too um but given i think in a fairly entertaining way um because i'm also someone who had to muddle his way through eighth grade earth science but i had to <laughs> learn i had to learn uh, basically how the bomb was constructed because i had to come up with some something that they needed in Los Alamos right, that, right. that this guy had to provide, you know. And so if anyone wants to read about the separation of isotopes, uh, I recommend it, but, but <laughs> in a very entertaining way. But it's so – but I've gotten 
I've gotten like you know every every once in a while someone will say, well, I'm actually an atomic physicist, and I go, uh oh, here's where they say, and you don't know shit, Mister, yeah. you know, and in fact they've sort of said, you know, and you know, my I have a quibble, but it's really minor, you know, and, and so. <laughs> You know, <laughs> people will do know. that, won't they? You're just like you write this book, and suddenly you'll hear from someone, who, you know, and they'll be like, "Oh, when this happened, or something, this and this." And you're just like, "Well, first of all, I did my <laughs> research, that and that would work. And second of all, I can't believe right. that you attempted right. time." I, I get a lot of that, but you yeah. know, I, I've always gotten a lot of it, usually related to firearms. Um, and no oh, matter I what I ever firearm. said about it, no matter what I ever said about a gun, I was wrong. That's always wrong. So, yeah, I'm the same way. Too. You know, I mean, it just doesn't matter. I could have the head of the NRA, you know, vetting my books, and I would have ten people tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about. So I think uh, guns are are like that. I mean, um, I've made mistakes in other areas, but that's the one I tend to hear the most from. Oh man, it just doesn't doesn't end. I know, I know. So. Um, now, we have almost opposite approaches of actually shaping our stories. You tend to outline pretty in-depth, and I don't at all. That's really um, – I always think that you guys are basically liars. <laughs> <laughs> I always sort of say that, give me a break. You guys don't really – but you don't, huh? You don't outline. No, no, not at all. And Like an outline for a book of mine might be half a page. It's wow. basically just the premise, and then – I follow it through, and you know, people will say, "Come on, do you really not?" And and truthfully, I don't. And and um, but I know story, and this is the difference. It's like I'm not writing by the seat of my pants. I know there has to be, um, you know, and then whatever you want to call it, inciting incident, something that happens that instigates or incites the story and starts it off. Things will get worse. There will be these forces of believability and causality, escalation that all interweave around in the character as he as he either grows or discovers himself um he'll have to be uh have to face these choices that you were talking about and and eventually there will be this climactic encounter and so so in any case for me it's all about understanding you know the aspects uh, of of story and you know um I, I, to me, I'm not out here trying to tell anybody to have to do it any one particular way or not. No, but, of course not. I but, agree. Um, but I think it's helpful for people to understand different approaches. So when you talk about outlining, I know for me, it would all, whenever people would say, you, you outline this book, it would always seem like, boy, it doesn't sound fun. It sounds intimidating. It sounds like something I'm no, no good at. No, it's torture. It's yeah. Torture. So, so for, okay. I was just gonna. This was your chance. You could have converted so many people. No, I, but, I still uh, think you're lying. But it's. it's uh, <laughs> I, I, I. First of all, I, I did learn it from Patterson because he, he, he. I mean, maybe, maybe in his level. Well, I don't know. Maybe he thought that way. But also, I think when you're getting paid seven or ten million a book, uh, um, you know, they want to see something firm in terms of where it's going. But, but I learned it from him. But. But I, uh, I've sold two outlines. I sold my first book, The Blue Zone, um, um, as an outline, uh, and and I sold this book, The One Man, as an outline. But my outlines are really thorough, rich, detailed sure. abridgments of the story, and it's how I plot. Uh, I sort of liken it to playing chess with yourself because you have to think twenty moves ahead. You know, that's yeah. why it's so hard because it's so mentally exhaustive, because you're dealing in all of these hypothetical sort of movements of characters and trying to get farther and farther down. But to me, 
it's my agent for plotting a story is yeah. is is the act of outlining. So I might have an outline. I probably have one in front of me somewhere, like 70 pages long. But, uh, well, maybe 60 single-spaced, because for some reason, I don't know why, but I outline single-spaced. But I'll I'll think out the scenes, I mean, in a cursory way. I'll have dialogue in the outlines. Uh, I'll have, you know, my cool clues. If you read the outline, you'll feel tension, um, suspense. Um, it's just delivered quickly, you know, and and it's just how I've always done it, although I have to admit that at a certain point out of one laziness and two, the urge to be paid faster because, as you know, you get paid on the acceptance of a story. Yeah. So, so um, um, you know, it, it was easier for me to write half outlines than whole outlines and basically get into half the book and sort of, you know, get to the point where, you know, you're leaving someone off and maybe in a paragraph or two outline where you saw the story going after that. And, and sure. you know, But they would still be 15, 20-page single-spaced outlines, you know. So I'm I'm a believer in it, but I, I you know, I couldn't conceive of writing a novel with a half page and just sort of sit down to chapter one. I, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin, I have to be honest. Uh, but, you know, maybe... Just to see, I'll try it at some point. Well, but so, someday I'll, um, I'll, <laughs> I'll, someday I'll sit down with you and yeah. um, convert you. No, I don't know about that. But no, I don't but, look. Um, look, you know, I still, I still believe in spontaneity. I still believe that, you know, in, in every one of my stories, it's sometimes moved in a different direction than I intended it to. Certainly, characters that, you know, are on one level of depth in the, um, in the, in the outline grow into much more important. I mean, sure. you know, it's a living moving fluid thing but and say i think that is so key that's the key really whether or not someone sits down and knows for example what might happen 100 pages from now or whatever but that they uh respond to the story as it's being told because you know sometimes i'll read a book and it's boxy and i can tell where it's going and i can almost see the outline coming through mm-hmm. you know chapter by chapter i'm like I, I know enough about story i get it i know what you're trying to do here with and immediately that's a turnoff i love those books where you're reading it and you're like i don't exactly know where this is going and right. But and I don't then, think that relates yeah. to the, the structure by which someone writes it. I, at least I don't. I, I, I don't think so. I just, I mean, I think you're either dealing with, you know, formulaic writers who who maybe don't have the deafness to, to you know, to mask that they're writing a bit of a formula. But I, I, I don't know. You know, to me, um, I mean, we all have to plot in a certain way, and, and I guess that's just become my um, process. So if, if so, someone but... were to sit down uh, and have an idea, uh, maybe whatever you might want to call it, high concept or, or mm-hmm. sort of an idea for a book, and they were saying, okay, look, I want to try outlining. At least I want to see if that can work. What, what are one or two of the things that you would say, okay, here's a pitfall or another sense, an obstacle, and here's how to overcome that as far as building this story before you actually start writing it. Well, you see, I, I've always written with multiple points of view. I don't know yeah. if you do or... or yeah, I know, do as well, I, mainly. Yeah. So so in, in that, you know, your outline is folding together various different actors in the in the story. And, and to me, you know, it's, it's sort of very hard if you don't have a roadmap, one, to know where you're going, but two, 
to sort of know when it's, you know, you have this instinct, well, it's time to have a different voice here or something of that nature, yeah. you know, but I sort of like at least having it on paper. But but I, I think, I, I, I guess, the, you know, I don't know if I can sort of relate it just to outlining it, but I think if you've got a number of your listeners who are either, you know, I guess you it's not fair to say aspiring writers, you're absolutely writers, but aspiring published writers, um, I, I think the thing that I feel that happens too quickly, and I think it would be true with outlining as well, is that is that people uh, people rush their stories, and I think stories need the best stories need patience. You know, they need to be set up over uh, both emotionally and it, it, as if someone's delivering a speech where you just don't, you know, reach pitch fever right away. You know, when when I read people's work. I, I I don't sort of see the modulation, and maybe part of it is that they're so conditioned by going to certain seminars where they right. say you got to get it all out in 50 pages, otherwise no one's going to read you. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and so everybody you know just is just throwing stuff out and not really seeding their books with the kinds of things that come back that become these great sort of aha moments. And scenes are rushed; they get to part, you know. To 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 be you know or or see before they get to be so you know to me even when you have an outline you're able to you know what the what what you know what the you know what the hook of the book is you know where a book is going to turn I've always sort of in most of my books I I have uh, at some point midway through or even more than midway through something happens where hopefully. You are saying to yourself, "Aha, so that's what this book is really about, you know nice, yeah yeah and and so you know it's it's not just a twist, but it's sort of that 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 moment that um um like that MacGuffin moment or something where everything just sort of changes in the book, and you've been reading on one level or dimension, and now you read differently, and I just you know I just think that you know when you see the when you see the story as a whole outlined when you see it as a whole in front of you you're able to plot those moments uh, a lot better especially for an aspiring writer because the last thing you want to do is to get trapped down plot lines that aren't going to exactly lead you for where you want to end up and, and so i also believe that it's good to know where you what your ending is um even before you start uh, um start writing page one i, I have to admit in in the one man um I ended up saving um of the principal actors I ended up saving one that was killed in the outline in the very end and it it sort of changed the whole book and so you know like I said if you you know even if you have an outline you can deviate from it if right. you feel and, it's better but, yeah and respond to it as the as the beats of the story and the movement of the story work and but you uh, just sort of let it yeah. you, you let the story flow and if you have to sit there and go all right that's chapter 1 what's chapter 2 and to me chapters should be scenes they shouldn't be endless you know uh, uh, uh linkages of scenes they should be the scene per chapter and and so to me it's like you know it's shuffling a deck you sort of just let your story unfold that way from the start. To me, it's it's not only it's good therapy and it's good practice. So, um, when you were you were talking about like being patient and setting it up, I, you know, when I grew up, I grew up reading Stephen King, uh, mainly mm. his short stories and so on. And I, you know, I honestly think he does a great job at that. Where you start, you enter this world, and 
like he patiently builds it and builds it and until you're you're present there wherever it is in Maine or in a city or something like that and and um just as far as oral storytelling back many years ago when I was taking a seminar with a famous storyteller named Donald Davis I told this story for critique and and um he said no you need to you need to slow it down I said well what do you mean he's like you need to spend more time in the beginning describing every all the scenes and i was like well i want i don't want people to get bored and he said something i'll never forget he said they will never be bored um if they are it's like he he said something like they'll be bored if they can't see it mm-hmm. but if they can see it they'll trust you right uh to move forward and I was well like, that, that's that's interesting yeah, yeah. i i hear you on that look i'm a guy that wrote had had six number ones actually six number ones with Patterson had a bunch of bestsellers nine books in my own now it's eleven but and I didn't trust that if I wrote in my own voice that readers wouldn't just stop reading me and say I'm bored so I always I came out of a situation where pace trump character when with Patterson uh, I I I I my first couple of books were along those lines because that's what my publisher wanted from me i gradually over my own work began to sort of let my own voice which was much more temperate and modulated a lot more you know but still books moved you know uh come out and it wasn't until the one man that i finally wrote in my own voice and this is after 17 books wow so it took me a long time but but even as someone who'd been published a bunch i still felt that if i didn't rush the, the story in some way that readers would just get bored and say, I don't want to read this guy. I didn't trust myself as a writer enough because when you do have patience that way, it's your skill as a storyteller or as a writer that is keeping your character and keeping your reader along. It does. And look, you still have to make the book interesting. I mean, but, but, but I just think you, you're, you're now your, your reader is trusting your writer and trusting his voice and trusting the story as opposed to, you know, you know, racing ahead to find out what happens, so to speak. Yeah, um, I've been uh, people. People have been recommending different TV shows for me recently. Oh, you have to watch this show, this show, this show, and I'll watch it. And some are based entirely on a premise. Like you'll watch it, and you the first episode is the pre- okay, and then there's nothing. I mean, in other words, there's this mm-hmm. hook, right? And then. Nothing really happens because they're trying to play it out. Well, what if we have season two and three and four and we need more stuff like this? And I just get bored with them after two or three episodes. Right. I want something that will draw me in with human dilemma, mm-hmm. that I will care about these characters, and I will want to spend time with these characters. So that's what I'm shooting for. Now, I don't know if you realized how wise you were, but I jotted down some of the things that you said over the course of our conversation. I'm going to remind you how smart you are. You said courage extends to fill the situation or expands to fill it, which I love. That was great. That was great. The best characters you hold up a lens and you see yourself. Um, you said you want to sh- search for heroism and not just not just tragedy. And then we conceal that we write within a formula, and what's at stake shines over the whole story. And that's maybe my favorite one is what's at stake shines over the whole story. So it isn't just about a bunch of events or, or someone being, you know, brave or something. Mm-hmm. Something matters, something that readers care about. And I think I think um, you discovering this new kind of realm of writing 
where it's interweaving some of reality and history and all of these passions that you have, that's going to really, really resonate long-term with your readers, and I'm really thrilled that you've discovered that. Well, super. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad that I've said anything that is worth jotting down. So, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. And, um, and Andrew, we want people to uh, engage with you online if there's a good place for that. Some people, it's Twitter or Facebook or website. Where can people kind of keep an eye on what you have coming up next or where you might be speaking? Well, I'm... Um um, I'm doing a lot of speaking in South Florida now because I've been spending a lot of time down there. But um, um, AndrewGrossBooks.com um, is my site, and uh, but I'm, you know, I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm easy to find. I have a fan page and a personal page, and try to keep current there. Um, and um, you know, I've already finished the next one, and the next one is called The Saboteur, and it's. It's another World War II story, um, also related to the Nazis' attempt to build an, an atom bomb. So that's a bit of a, a linkage there. Um, and uh, and and uh, I don't know. So either of those two things, like like most writers, I'm pretty accessible. You know, it's 15 years ago you could read someone and 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 all you, you know if you could ever run into them or ever have a conversation with them, it would just be the thrill of your life. Now. All you got to do is Facebook someone, and within about 20 minutes, we write back. I know so, it's 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 pretty. I know. It well, it takes all the mystery. It takes all the mystery out of us. It's like, what are you doing? You know, I don't know. I'm sitting here watching a hockey game. You know. Or, <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. Well, we want people to check out those books as well as your past ones, but especially this, uh, the the one that's coming up, and also the one man. Um, for information about my writing. Um, my speaking schedule, go to stephenjames.net. And, of course, to everyone who's listened, we we have many other broadcasts uh, on our website, thestoryblender.com. You can click in and listen to both organic writers and outliners, both of us. All right. Based on the storytelling. And, and as I always like to tell people, always remember. This is my cue. The art of the story is in the blend. Excellent. Nice uh-huh. job. Okay, well, Andy, thanks for being here. Thanks, David. And uh, thanks to everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time. Sounds like so long now.